1950, the year my dad was born, that same year, C.S. Lewis released the first book in his Chronicles of Narnia series. That book was The Lion, The Witch, and The Wardrobe. That book would prove to be his most popular of all of the Chronicles of Narnia. It's a story of four siblings, two brothers and two sisters who live in London, but they are evacuated from their house during World War II, and they go out into the country to stay in this large, big, mysterious house that's this old house with lots of places to explore, and there's this mysterious professor who owns the house. Now, one day, they are playing inside the house, and the youngest of the siblings, a girl named Lucy, goes into a wardrobe, and as she's backing up in the wardrobe, feeling the garments, the, co- the, the coats and things hanging up, all of a sudden, she begins to feel what feels like branches and and then she it's like she starts getting cold and, and she's realized she's outside and it's snowing and she doesn't know where she is but we know she's been transported through some kind of portal to this other place called Narnia and there she meets a fawn you think of a fawn being just uh, that young deer but she actually meets a fawn it's a it's a human with horns and he has goat legs and his name is Mr. Tumnus and he invites her into his home she thinks he's the best thing so nice but he actually has ulterior motives he's going to give her over to the evil white witch but he has pity on her and and kind of confesses and sobs uh, that he's been a very bad fawn and he actually leads her back to where she can go back into the wardrobe she goes back it's as if in the regular world time had stopped they're still playing hide and go seek and she spent hours in Narnia and there goes Lucy telling her brothers and her sister all that had happened and they're like whatever they did not believe her silly fairy tale stories but her older brother Edmund makes his way into Narnia as well through the wardrobe and he actually meets that evil queen of Narnia the white witch He gives in to her spells and has some Turkish delight, which really leads him to where he has to want to have that more and more. And she says, well, I'm not going to let you have any more, but go back and invite all your your brother and your sisters back and come see me at my castle. Of course, she's very evil. I think even Edmund, the brother, knows that she's evil, but he just can't seem to shake that Turkish delight that he's eaten. And so later in the story, all four make their way into the wardrobe, and they all then make their way into Narnia. And the first place they go is Mr. Tumnus' house. He's Lucy's good friend now. She's been more than once to see him. And so they go to his house, but they see that there's a note posted on the front of the house that Mr. Tumnus had been arrested by the secret police of uh, Jardis, the Queen of Narnia, the White Witch. So they're terrified. You know, they, they know something bad has happened to good Mr. Tumnus, and they make their way there in the Narnian countryside, and they come to a beaver, and he's a talking beaver like all the animals in Narnia. And Mr. Beaver invites the four siblings into his little home with his wife, Mrs. Beaver, and there they fill them in on all things Narnia that they can take in. 
There'd been a prophecy that these four sons of Adam and Eve would sit on these thrones and care Paravel, the palace there. So they were here for a very specific purpose. And so he explains about the prophecy. He talks about uh, the evil white witch who's really the false ruler of Narnia. But then he talks about Aslan. And the children just assume that he's talking about a, a human being. And they ask him, is, is, is he a man? And Mr. Beaver says that he is the son of the great emperor beyond the sea and that he is a lion, the lion, the great lion, he says. And at that moment, Lucy's sister Susan says, oh, I thought he was a man. Is he quite safe? I shall feel rather nervous about meeting a lion. Mrs. Beaver said to her, if there is anyone who can appear before Aslan without their knees knocking, then they're either braver than most or else just silly. To which Lucy said, then he isn't safe. And here's the famous line in the the story. Mr. Beavers replied, safe? Don't you hear anything Mrs. Beaver tells you? Who said anything about being safe? Of course he isn't safe, but he's good. He's the king, I tell you. And as Aslan comes into the story, it's very clear what C.S. Lewis is doing here. Aslan is the Christ figure, for the Bible tells us that Jesus is the lion of the tribe of Judah, and Aslan is the king of Narnia and the king of all. A lion's not safe, but he's good because he's the king. And as we come to the end of this multi-week series on the attributes of God, it is fitting, I believe, that we conclude our study on the goodness of God. The goodness of God is such a source of comfort to every believer in the Lord Jesus Christ. But to those on this planet who are not convinced that God is good... They've been led astray from believing the God revealed to us in Scripture. Ted Turner, the billionaire founder of CNN, has been considered for years an outspoken opponent of Christianity. He is a skeptic. He would call himself an agnostic. And years ago, Ted Turner gave a speech, and he talked about his own spiritual life in that speech to the American Humanist Association. He said that as a young person, Ted Turner did, that he was given a Christian upbringing. And he even considered growing up to become a missionary. He then said he was saved in that talk to the American Humanist Association, that he was saved seven or eight times. It's not very good theology to say that you can be saved seven or eight times. But then he talked about what turned him against God was when he prayed for his sister to live, but she died. I've seen firsthand, firsthand, people turn away from God when bad things happen in either their lives or the lives of people that they love. People become convinced that God truly is not good. Some stop going to church. Others stop believing in God altogether. 
But if God's goodness is one of His attributes, and it is because we've already read together earlier in the worship service a litany of scriptures declaring the goodness of God. If God really is good, then it follows that our enemy, the devil, Satan, will do everything in his power to convince as many people in this world that God is not good. But today I'm here to to declare to you that old saying is true. God is good. Okay, all the time. All the time. God is good. Let's try it again. God is good. God is good. That is true. I know this from personal experience. But my personal experience is not the foundation for for why any of us should believe God is good. That's just the gravy on top. The foundation of why God is good is because the Bible declares the goodness of God. We're going to read some more scriptures about the goodness of God to lay this firm foundation. Psalm 100 verse 5. For the Lord is good. His steadfast love endures forever, and His faithfulness to all generations. Notice that God's goodness in this verse is linked together with His loyal, steadfast love and His faithfulness. That's a common theme that we find throughout the Bible. When God's goodness is talked about, we see His faithfulness and His steadfast love. Look at Psalm 119, that psalm devoted to describing to us God's amazing word. Verse 68 of Psalm 119, God, you are good. We read this one earlier. You are good and you do good. Teach me your statutes. God is good both in character, you are good, and in actions, you do good because of that. Lord, I want you to teach me your word because you're good and you do good. Look at Isaiah 63, verse 7, where Isaiah is reflecting upon the goodness of God, the steadfast love of God to Israel, even in the midst of judgment. He says, I will recount the steadfast love of the Lord, the praises of the Lord. So you see steadfast love, there it is, right? According to all that the Lord has granted us and the great goodness to the house of Israel that he has granted them according to his compassion, according to the abundance of his steadfast love. Just a couple of comments. His goodness has been granted. For something to be granted, it's a gift of grace. His goodness has been given by his grace to the house of Israel, and his goodness is coming according to his compassion. Compassion is mercy. Sympathy, empathy, and out of the abundance of his, there's that loaded Hebrew word, chesed, his steadfast love, his loyal covenant love for his people. That goodness is stemming forth from his compassion, his faithfulness, his love. Look at Psalm 145, verse 9. The Lord is good to all. And his mercy is over all that he has made. 
It's not just that God is good to the house of Israel. It's not just that God is good to every Christian. God's mercy is over all that he has made. Notice mercy is connected to goodness. His mercy is over all that he has made. The Lord is good to all. He's good to everything, everyone. He is good to all. God's not like us, and we should be glad. We should want to be like God, made in his image, but he's not like us. And that's a good thing. Because we'll have good days where we maybe have good thoughts, feel good, and do some good things. And then we have bad days where we don't always do what is right or even think what is right. We're temperamental beings who change constantly. But God, as we learned a few weeks ago, is immutable. He is unchanging. He is always good all the time. This is our God. His goodness is wonderful. Let's define it together. Most of us know what goodness is. Last week I shared a definition of the holiness or the justice of God by Chip Ingram in his great book. Today I'm going to give you A.W. Tozer's definition of goodness found in his timeless classic book, The Knowledge of the Holy. He has a chapter. They're all short, uh, but they're powerful, power-packed. This is his definition. I think it's the best I've found of the goodness of God. He says, the goodness of God is that which disposes him to be kind, cordial, benevolent, and full of goodwill toward men. He is tender-hearted and of quick sympathy. And his unfailing attitude toward all moral beings is open, frank, and friendly. By his nature, he is inclined to bestow blessedness, and he takes holy pleasure in the happiness of his people. I'm just going to leave that up there for a few moments for you just to kind of take all that in. What a thorough definition for us. When I think about pure goodness, I think about grandmothers. If you've been blessed enough to, to know your grandmother, now I know there may be some exceptions. Maybe there's some mean grandmothers out there. But um, when I think about just pure goodness, I think of grandmothers. My dad's mom was a good bit older than my mom's mom. And I got to know my dad's mother Precious lady, we visit with her a few times, you know, a year and, and over my childhood. Got to know her, but I really, really, really got to know my mom's mom because I could walk to her house in less than a minute. And she grew up there. My mom, I grew up in that house there in, in our subdivision. And I could walk down to my mama and papa's house and, oh, I like to do that because good things awaited me there at their house. My grandmother, my mama, was full of goodness. She was kind, patient, a servant, would do anything for you, always listened, believed in you, made time for you, welcomed you. She just made me feel so loved and cherished. Grandmothers just exude goodness to their grandchildren. I've seen my own children respond in the same ways to their grandmothers. 
as good as grandmothers and grandfathers are to their grandchildren, and as good and wonderful as parents should be to their children, Jesus says they cannot compare to how good God is to his own. Look what Jesus says in Matthew's Gospel, chapter 7, verse 11, his Sermon on the Mount. He says, if you then, who are evil, and compared to God, we are not good. He is the greatest good. If we are sinful, evil people, know how to give good gifts to your children. How much more will your Father, who is in heaven, give good things to those who ask him? How much more will God give good to us when we ask Him? He is good. He is faithful. And this morning, I want us to consider what the goodness of God means for our lives today. How we might apply it. How it might change us. Transform the way that we live our lives. Because it will if we truly take it in and believe and understand the goodness of God. I want to look at the verse we looked at, I think, earlier when we're reading scriptures with Anthony. Psalm 34, verse 8. Just the first half of it. Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. The psalmist invites us to indulge our senses. To take into our very bodies the goodness of God. Now, all of us have favorite foods to eat. I've shared before about my love for banana pudding. That's just pure goodness when you eat it. I love to eat it. It brings me joy, brings me happiness because it's just good to eat. We love the delight and the flavor of our favorite foods. The psalmist says, taste. The Lord, taste him, see how good he is. And then he says, look upon the goodness of God. And we all know what good food tastes like, and we know what goodness looks like. As we continue to pray for Afghanistan, for the innocent lives there, the lead up to September 11th, we're praying for God's protection for our own nation. I saw pictures this last week of our military, holding little Afghan children. That's goodness. Seeing a newborn baby, watching that baby laugh. That's goodness. Seeing an older couple in their old age, holding hands, walking down the street. That's goodness. We know what goodness looks like. A beautiful sunrise, a beautiful sunset. We have seen the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. As, of living, as Psalm 27, we read together. We've seen goodness. We've tasted goodness. And the goodness comes from God. So what should happen when we taste and see that the Lord is good? Two application truths for us. Today, first, when we taste and see that the Lord is good, we should first rejoice in God's goodness shown to us in His mercy, grace, and patience. 
We should rejoice in God's goodness shown to us in His mercy, grace, and patience. We began this sermon series looking at Moses in the book of Exodus. And almost every week I've come back to the book of Exodus because we find so many insights from when God revealed Himself to Moses in Exodus 34. But in Exodus 33, Moses asks the Lord God, show me your glory. This is how God answers him in Exodus 33, 19. God says, I will make all my goodness pass before you and will proclaim before you my name, the Lord. And I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious and will show mercy on whom I will show mercy. Mercy. It is interesting that the glory of God, the sum of all of his attributes, revealed to Moses that God describes his glory as all of his goodness. So God makes all of his goodness pass by Moses, and we read that in Exodus 34, verses 6 and 7 where God declares his name to Moses, the same name he gave Moses at the burning bush, I am who I am, Yahweh, Jehovah, the self-existent, self-sufficient, eternally present God, I am who I am. And then he, in that sacred moment, declares all of his goodness to Moses. And he says, the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful, and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands and forgiving iniquity, transgression, and sin. But he also says in verse 7 that God's goodness includes the fact that he would by no means clear the guilty and would judge for sin, repay that sin, even to the future generations. As we learned last week with the justice of God, a judge isn't a good judge if he or she doesn't execute justice. God would not be good if he was not just. He operates in accordance to his justice. I emphatically made that point last week. However, when we read the scope of these verses in Exodus 34, 6, and 7, the verses that Anthony led us to read in here together, the verses I read at the beginning laying the foundation of all these things, we see more emphasis being given in Exodus 34, 6, and the first half of 7 toward the mercy, the steadfast love, the forgiveness, the compassion of God. That seems to be linked biblically more with his goodness. It just does. Wayne Grudem in his Systematic Theology book, by the way, comments on this. He says this. He says, God's mercy is his goodness toward those in distress. Now, the mercy of God is an attribute of God. But it's intertwined with his goodness. It's his Goodness shown to those who are in distress. His grace is his goodness toward those who deserve only punishment. And his patience is his goodness toward those who continue to sin over a period of time. So God is so good to us. As we sang, God is so good to me. How many times in the Bible 
do we see in the Gospels especially? Son of David, have mercy. Cries for help in distress. Peter, (laughs) Peter trying to walk on water is sinking. Lord, save me. Have mercy, right? The disciples in the boat when the water's coming in the storm. Lord, don't you care? Have mercy. We see cries for mercy all the time. And we've been that person who's cried out, Lord, help me. Lord, have mercy. And that's a prayer that God answers. Near to the brokenhearted, close to us in our distress. He is a merciful God. But he's also a gracious God. We see his goodness in his grace. We sang that top ten favorite hymn. I I can't say I have a favorite one because there's so many great ones. But in my top ten is... Come thou fount. With those old words, oh man, what a song. Come thou fount of every blessing. Some versions in verse 3, let thy, we sang, let thy grace, Lord, like a fetter. Some versions, let thy goodness like a fetter. Bind my wandering heart to thee. For his grace is a merited favor toward us, those of us who deserve only punishment, death, hell, for our sin. Yet God in his grace saves us through Jesus Christ our Lord. He is a good and gracious God. We don't deserve to be alive today. But we're here by the grace of God, sustained by His grace, kept alive by His grace. Oh, how good is the grace of God. And the patience. I love that old King James word for patience, long-suffering. A fuse, a long fuse. (laughs) I remember uh, late last week was National Dog Day. One day last week, all these people, people posted pictures on Facebook of their dogs, you know. And, but Jennifer grew up with a, a wonderful lab named Jude. <clears throat> Most likely named after the Beatles song, Hey Jude. Anyway, so here's this, this black lab. And Jennifer said, when I was a kid, I would just, you know, jump on his back and grab his ears. And he was just so long-suffering and patient with Jennifer as a child and our little doggy we got now he's just good like that let pick him up and hold him he's just he's good like that he's just patient my grandmother who just exuded goodness was such a patient soul she had to be because she's married to my grandfather (laughs) but patience I mean God overlooks our sin he overlooks our faults we keep doing wrong and he continues to have mercy on us grace toward us his patience the bible says the lord's patience is our salvation we've all experienced god's goodness through his mercy and our distress through his grace when we don't deserve it and through his patience when he overlooks our sin and he can only do that because jesus bore our sins on the cross. And the Bible says that God is patient, not willing for any to perish, but all to come to repentance. The very mission to go and make disciples hinges upon the very patience and mercy of God for this lost world. Oh, we should rejoice. We should rejoice in the goodness of God revealed to us in His mercy, grace, and patience. But secondly, God's goodness should lead us to repent. Repent means to change, to change how you see it, to change your 
heart to change your life. God's goodness should lead us to change, to turn from our ungratefulness and truly believe that God loves us. We must repent and we are guilty. Even today, perhaps, we woke up and didn't say, God, I thank you that I'm alive today. We have so much to be thankful for. Because God is good all the time. We as Christians of all people should be the most thankful people on the planet. Every good and perfect gift comes down from the Father of lights, James 1.17. We're alive today. Aren't you thankful to be alive today? I know this world is difficult. I know the Delta variant of COVID-19 is out there wreaking havoc. I know we're living in, in a difficult day and time to be alive. But I thank God that I'm here, that I'm breathing, that I'm alive. We should be thankful. And we always have hope, church, because we have Jesus. And we have a God who never leaves us alone. He never leaves us or forsake us. God, by His grace, we're told, has given us all things. That's what Romans chapter 8 tells us. Boy, it'd be, it'd, be, it'd be a toss-up between John 3 and Romans 8. If I just have one, book of the, one chapter of one book in the Bible, it'd be a toss-up. Might go to Romans 8. Romans, I mean, if you need to be encouraged today and every day, read Romans 8. No condemnation for those in Christ Jesus. Powerful verses about the Spirit, about suffering, about how God is faithful, working all things together for good. But here at Romans 8, 32, the Bible says, He, that's God, who did not spare His own Son, but gave Him up for us all. How will He not also with Him graciously give us all things? God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in Jesus shall not perish but have everlasting life. He gave his son, did not spare his son. And in doing so, he gave us everything that we could ever want and need. We can trust that God is forever good because God has graciously given us all things. All that we need. Everything for life in God and us given to us through the word of God, Peter tells us. All that we need is found in Christ. All that we need. How can we not be thankful we should repent of our ungratefulness. But Romans 2, 4 talks about the very kindness and the goodness of God. Or do you presume, Paul says, on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? So why is God so kind? Why is God so patient? Why is God so good? To not just us, but to all the Bible says. Psalm 145, he's good to all. Why? Because it's his kindness. And yes, the Bible balances this. It says godly sorrow produces repentance. But the Bible also says that God's kindness is meant to lead us to repentance. We must change our view of God. Because there are people, even in the church, who have this mistaken human notion that God doesn't really like you. 
Because you, you have people in life that you like and don't like. And there's folks in life that like you and don't like you. You have those that you love the most. And so you just kind of have this idea that God has his favorites and that God maybe doesn't really love me like he loves Pastor Kay. He's the preacher and, oh, he's the pastor. And, oh, he, look, God must love him. He doesn't love me any more than he loves you. God is abundant in his love. I love what A.W. Tozer writes in his chapter on the goodness of God, he says the whole outlook of mankind might be changed if we could all believe that we dwell under a friendly sky and that the God of heaven, though exalted in power and majesty, is eager to be friends with us. God's eager. He loves you. He wants to be your friend. He is kind. He is cordial. He is benevolent. All the things that Tozer said. He is a good God. And he loves you. Oh, D.O. Moody, the great evangelist said, if I could just run up and down the street and just convince people that God is love, our churches would fill up because people want to be loved. And there is a good God who is love, who wants to show you his goodness through his mercy, through his grace, through his love. God, as I said years ago in the sermon series on the grace of God, there is nothing you can do to make God love you more, and there is nothing, church, you can do to make God love you less. He is gracious. He is merciful. He is patient. He is good. God is good. God is good. Lord, I thank you that you're good. I thank you that your goodness <laughs> Building on Psalm 23 as we, sat, as we quoted that scripture and heard the song today. Your goodness is running after us, God. As I heard this sermon one time, goodness and mercy are the holy hounds of heaven that God sends after us in his grace. Oh God, you're good. You're always good. No matter what happens in our lives, we know that you're good all the time. And we trust your goodness because we trust your gospel, because we trust your word. Jesus, you're good, and we thank you. Let us always believe that. If we can't remember anything about this sermon series, five years from now, God, let us remember, God, you are so good. You are so good to me and all that you have made. God, you're a good God. And because of that, we rejoice and we worship and we surrender our lives to you, God. And Jesus, we just want to tell you what's on our heart. Because you're our friend. You're our brother. You're our exalted older brother. We are your, we're joint heirs with you, Jesus. So now we're just going to tell you what's on our hearts, Jesus. And pour our heart out to you, a good and merciful Savior that you are. We ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Would you stand now as we sing? Another one of my favorite hymns, <laughs> I Must Tell Jesus. Just tell him whatever's on your heart. If you're feeling down today, if you're struggling, if you have questions about the Bible, about God, about life, if you just need comfort, if you need to experience some goodness, let's tell Jesus about it. This altar is wide open. I'll be here to receive you. We take in new members right now. We say yes to baptism. We say yes to salvation in Jesus Christ. You come if you're making any public decision. I'm here to pray for you and love you. Let's tell Jesus what's on our hearts.